Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey! Welcome, friend. I just swallowed a goddamn bug on the way into the studio. Um, <coughs> pardon me. And we're back. As always, glad to have you back. And hey, I'm glad everyone enjoyed that sprawling sex scene from last week. I was kind of hoping we'd breeze through that part, but after the third or fourth page, it seemed I was a little late for a disclaimer. Yes, Chester, I saw the comment about the guy jerking off. Well, uh, a thumbs up is a thumbs up, right? Unless he stuck his... Oh, Chester, this is a family show, you know. Kinda. A little bit. Um, sorry about that, friend. Hmm. Alright. Well, today is National Hydration Day, wouldn't you know it? So smoke them if you got them and drink all those glasses to the bottom, y'all. Oh, hey. I didn't see you there. You know, True Blood Stark Tales is only one of the many shows on this network you could be listening to. We hope you'll subscribe to our entire lineup, including Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, Scary Stories Told in the Dark, Fear from the Heartland, and Horror Hill. All available on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform. Also, visit simplyscarypodcast.com to become a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you get our entire catalog ad-free and available to download or stream. A bargain. And now, back to the show. So tonight we're joined again by author Rory Duane, whom you might remember from his stories The Quaker and The Last Will and Testament of Franklin C. Little. This one's the tale of a young man trying to pick up where his father left off. So without further delay, from author Rory Duane, I give you The Bells of Nantica. Doom went the bells of Nantica. Doom spoke to bells. Death hungered for the beaten heart of man woman, and child, hungered for their still-haunting spirits, and my life was at an end, for the bells of Manteca 
spoke doom. Let us travel back, shall we? Imagine you are a lonely child and that your father is a fine archaeologist and explorer, best in the empire of His Majesty King George VI. Many years pass, and every appearance of your father brings with it various and enchanting artifacts of ancient civilizations. Death masks from Egypt, burial beakers and pots fired in the era of the Picts, trinkets pillaged from the Aztec Empire, and clay dolls of mysterious composition from the deep and cold wastes of Siberia. All of these things and more fill every nook and cranny in your rural Victorian mansion. This story is true for me, you see. I am Nathaniel Wright III, and I foolishly followed in my father's footsteps. It all began on my 17th birthday when a letter arrived on a frosty December morning. Crunching footsteps on the graveled path outside told me of an approaching visitor. Looking out the tall reading room windows, a postal worker trudged up the frost-touched path and knocked on the door. Mother answered after some moments shutting out the cold upon receiving the letters. I rushed into the corridor, hoping for a word from Father's latest expedition, but Mother held an open letter, eyes quickly scanning the contents. Her rose-tinged complexion drained, now appearing like the porcelain adorning the kitchen's many cabinets. What is it? I said. Mother, what's the matter? but her eyes flitted about the room aimlessly, eyes swimming with tears, hand trembling. Your father... Your father is dead. I cannot recollect what I said next, if anything at all. I cannot describe feelings, thoughts. Days passed, mere blurs filled with faces of unknown visitors of empty words and hands on my shoulder that gave no strength to the steadiness inside, for there was none. We buried the idea of a man in an empty coffin, dropped dirt on a life of memories, and walked away from a part of ourselves. Summer arrived, and my studies were at an end. My father's only sibling, an estranged man of odd character who I struggled to call uncle, arrived, and my things were packed. Mother left me with a parting kiss, and I found myself bumping down the road on his cart, away from home, headed for the alien streets of London City. In the university, I found refuge. In the ancient tomes and dusty aisles of the majestic library I hid from the world. Studies became an outlet, an obsession, now allowed to guide my mind through whatever avenues and laneways of knowledge that I wished. Years passed. Armed with a wealth of knowledge, a thirst for adventure, and my father's notes from the expedition precursory to his disappearance, I set off, seeking the ancient city searching for the golden bells of Mantica, 
deep in the Amazon rainforest. Departing the steamboat, I lugged my chest along the pier. The port of Manaus was busy. Soldiers were departing or arriving. Stevedores loaded crates onto waiting horse carts or lifting cargo via the port crane onto the awaiting ships. The warm wind whipped my hair into my face as I peered around for my transporter, quickly scanning over the locals, but none paid me any heed. Too busy lugging cargo or greeting family members. I then spotted a man wearing a bowler hat and chewing on a fat cigar. He squinted at me through the dark smoke, leaning against the ramshackle building. Are you the guide? I asked. He squinted all the more, which I thought impossible. Tovez, the man muttered in Portuguese, maybe, spitting between his teeth. The Judaman likes digging dirt? Yes, I'm an archaeologist. I find things for museums and such. I wiped the sweat from my brow with my kerchief, dropped a weighty chest to the floor. The man said nothing, eyeing me quietly. Do you have the horses readied? Same, same. Horses up there, in shade, drinking water. The man nodded to a collection of buildings nearby. We carried the chest across the dirt road and found three horses tethered by a drinking trough behind the buildings. The man strapped the chest to the pack animal, a rather hot-tempered donkey by the name of Picadas, and turned to mount his horse. I'm Nathaniel. I held out my hand when he turned to face me. Nathaniel Wright. He raised an eyebrow and then shook my hand. I am Philippe. Provisions I found upon inspection had been thoughtfully equipped. There were sacks of grain, flour, dried meats, as well as salt, water filters, cooking utensils, sleeping rolls, medicines, machetes, knives, and much more. It seemed the museum had hired a death purveyor of goods for the exhibition, as well as God. The man Philippe was stoic and watchful as we left town. At certain points he would dismount showing me the flora and fauna. Edible and poisonous plants were in abundance as well as game. First night making camp, I made tea, offering Philippe a cup, but the man turned his nose away. Uh, no good, Patreo. Here, let me show you a real drink, huh? Philippe took out a sack and poured pungent beans from inside. After boiling, I gratefully accepted the tin cup and sipped. The coffee was extraordinary putting my tea to shame. It's very good, I smiled. That night I couldn't help but gaze up in awe at the crystal night sky, untainted yet by industry. In the following days we passed by a collection of villages as well as two fortified towns where soldiers were stationed. The fortifications were old and redundant, but the capitan of the town told me they were a heritage to the locals. I gained directions to various ancient earthworks from the Capitan, a man of large proportion who had a penchant for cigars, five of which Philippe was hard-pressed to part with in exchange for said information. On following the directions, we found evidence of ancient habitation, but none that matched the accounts of Mantica and the golden bells and high towers. I hadn't had much faith in finding anything useful, but thought I might have seen some runes or such. 
Felipe helped me in translating when interacting with natives. They are a friendly and welcoming people, to say the least, despite their ill treatment in the distant past by explorers and government. Elders in some of the villages traded goods with me, local remedies and such, for small stocks of ink, paper, snuff, and other oddities from back east. The women are gracious, dark, and beautiful. The men proud and strong, both genders wise and respectful to the natural ways of Mother Earth. Simple paradise if it wasn't uncomfortably humid. It was after the eighth day since leaving Manaus that we passed the final village, the only habitation this side of the Amazon rainforest, except for deep inside where native tribes still roamed, and I was both excited and cautious in possibly meeting these people. Felipe told me that some were best avoided, but others perhaps approachable. Picadas was at the rear of the group with my horse in the center and Felipe behind me as I walked ahead, cutting the path for the animals through the thick underbrush with the machete. It was relatively easy going, having been cleared some years before by the Portuguese for a fort that had never been built. At dusk, camp was made atop a slight crevice, overlooking the patchy, newly made path behind us. To my lungs, the air tasted sweet and clean, and I sat in awe of the beauty of the land, watching the sun dip behind the trees. In the following days, travel became slower, the trees more solid and had to be circumvented. The remedies given to us by the natives came in very useful as mosquitoes seemed to be the dominant predator of the jungle, although I did see numerous large spiders and snakes. These I avoided with a wide berth. On the third day in the jungle, a large boulder of odd shape situated beside a waterfall drew my attention. The boulder was covered in vegetation which I cut away, revealing the weathered stone beneath. I could not believe my eyes, as there worked into the surface were the first authentic runes of the Mantecan alphabet I had ever seen. After taking notes and coordinates of the boulder, we followed the Amazon River upstream. At dusk and dawn each day, Felipe caught many fish which he smoked, and I felt rather confident that we would not run out of supplies. Three days following the discovery of the boulder, we came to the first bends in the river. In my father's notes, it described a series of earthworks two days northwest of the river, having been some type of century tower or encampment in ancient times for weary travelers headed for Manteca. But in the notes, after this discovery of earthworks, father had failed to find the city itself and had returned to England empty-handed. A rough map had been scribbled showing five locations of earthworks, seeming to be situated in an arc. The map showed ground escalation via grid lines. The location indicated lay on a quite large outcrop of rock, bordered by a tributary of the Amazon River. It was a good place for a town, perhaps, before a city bustling with over one million inhabitants. I had my doubts, to say the least. Felipe, in seeing the terrain we would be traveling, untethered the horses and left them to graze, promising me that they would not stray far. This I also had my doubts about, but stayed silent as he had been an agreeable traveling companion thus far. We set off, Felipe, Picadas, and I, 
venturing into the jungle once more, the mountains rising into the distance. On the second day of traveling into the interior, away from the river, the landscape grew slanted, the air more humid. I found the next earthworks, a hill covered in jungle, almost unnoticeable if not for the two boulders on its northern and southern rises. It rained on the third and fourth day, and as we ate a cold meal with no fire, our spirits seemed to have become dampened somewhat. The reason I could not say, although the gloomy atmosphere below the jungle's towering trees blocking out what little daylight there was did not help. Insects feasted upon us, having run out of the repellent pace given to us by the natives. On the eighth day, we ran out of grain and dried meat. Picadas, having slipped his tether in the night, and eaten these supplies as we slept. The donkey became more and more ill-tempered and would bite at my arm or neck. It seemed the animal was justly named. On our tenth day, we arrived at the location. It was as shown, a large rise bordered by a series of cliffs overlooking jungle on one side, the tributary on the other, winding back to the way we came. Boulders lay scattered about with small earthworks in places, but not on the scale I had hoped for. It seemed that perhaps I had stumbled onto a smaller city, a neighbor of Manteca even. The rise was large enough to sustain perhaps 50,000 civilians, if not twice as much in a squeeze. Tablets found in some recesses bore what might be the runes of the Mantecan alphabet, but were far too weathered to decipher. On my second day of excavating a site of small boulders, I found pot shards, charcoal, and two eaten instruments. Felipe left Picadas tethered on a jutting rock and set off to explore the cliffs, having stated that he spent two years exploring Machu Picchu and was well acquainted with steep climbs and long drops. At dusk, he returned, having come to a dead end, but swearing that there must be caves deep inside and would try a different route in the morning. The next day, the wind picked up and dark clouds appeared on the horizon. I found two pieces of metal after excavating a different side on the rise. Fragments of a bracelet and one necklace pendant with a snake engraved onto its surface. Near dusk, it rained just before Felipe reappeared and I excitedly showed him the artifacts, but he seemed distracted, barely giving them a minute of inspection. After dinner, I tried to engage him with conversation, but at my questions of what he had found, his face darkened and he went to bed without saying a word. When I awoke, Felipe had already left camp. I began excavating, and about noon the sky darkened and a heavy rain began to fall. It was the first time I had to use my oil cloak since arriving, and use it I did, as the downpour was vicious. I huddled inside my tent, waiting for it to ease, but it passed into dusk with no easing, and Felipe did not return. I found upon waking that the weather was no better, and Felipe still had not returned. So, abandoning my excavations, I took my cloak, provisions, a lantern, and rope, and set off to find him. Picatus was only too happy to be left alone in camp. I had my misgivings about leaving the foul creature so close to our provisions. I came to a steep drop overlooking the jungle, 
and saw that Felipe had been using a small ledge along the rock to get around a jutting mound of rock. I hardened myself to the task, hugging against the rock face and slowly moving along the ledge, step by step, until I was midway and had to reach around and find a handhold. The wind fortunately pressed me against the rock. If it had been clawing at my clothes, I doubt I would have had the heart to continue. Bike continue I did, finally reaching around the jut and finding a handhold, regaining my nerve as I sidled onto the other side. The path led into a hollow of the cliff, where I found scrub and animal bones, which appeared to be made by some bird of prey by the scattering of feathers. I called for Felipe, but knew that I would have to delve deeper into the cliffs to be within earshot. So, lighting my lantern, I entered through the gap in the wall, the heat slowly vanishing behind me as the air cooled inside. After some minutes, I entered a small cave with miniature stalagmites and stalactites, along with dark pools of murky water. The path led through the center of the cave, and upon reaching the far side, I held up my lantern and gasped. There, worked into the wall, were Mantecan runes, along with hundreds, if not thousands, of hand paintings. There were illustrations of animals, such as monkeys, snakes, and insects, but there were also images of people, villages. Why hadn't Felipe told me about these? What reason could he have to not share his discoveries? With a score of questions rushing through my mind, I hurried along the path, passing deeper into the cave, in search of what I didn't know. More caves came and went, growing more spacious each time, with the stalagmites and stalactites now large enough that I couldn't reach my arms around one side of them. I found no more hand paintings, but in places where the path branched off into different directions, I found small runes inscribed nearby, indicating what direction I should follow. After a few hours of traveling into the caves, I came upon a small camp where I found an extinguished fire, bedroll, pots, and some food. Along with these were notebooks, some still unused, one of which I am now using to record my travels and findings. Upon inspection, the journals were belonging to Felipe, and it seems that the man had good reason to keep his findings quiet as it stated that he was hired by a group of investors searching for the Golden Bells, and he had been using me to gain their whereabouts, and I was to be dealt with afterwards, fatally. I could not believe that the good-natured travel companion I had spent these last few weeks with was so cold-hearted. My sense of betrayal soon gave way to anger, and taking one notebook to prove my knowledge of his intent, along with a blank journal and pens, I was about to set off when I thought better of delving deeper into the caves unarmed. Searching through the camp, I found a knife and climbing axe, and feeling somewhat more capable if I should bump into Felipe, I began my journey of retribution. I did not know of the horrors that would soon follow. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that 
and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I rationed my provisions, but they were depleting faster than expected. And after the second day, the light from my lantern began to fade. So I had to cut my cloak with a knife and make torches, wrapping them around some scrub I found, which I bundled and lashed together with severed twine from my rope. I used all three in my first day, well, what I think of as my first day, and had to make the next day's torches in darkness. The sounds within these caves when darkness surrounds me are eerie beyond description. I hear scratching on rocks and bubbling water, but it is only my imagination. I know this. I know this. After resting, I set off and upon lighting my last torch, I began working on the next batch of torches, which with a clear mind and a strong light, I had time to make more than expected. Materials are scarce and I pray that I find something soon. I napped after lighting the next torch, awakening as it was just about to die, and had enough time to light another. As it took flame, I heard echoes like rushing water passing through the tunnel. Also a tapping like fingernails, but metallic. Perhaps I am losing my mind. The passages now begin to grow narrower, and the air seems more humid, as if I am nearing above ground, which is impossible, as I have been traveling in a downward direction this entire time. Or have I? There has been little sign of Felipe, with only one discarded pen and a small pile of ash to speak of the trader's passage through here. I am no expert at tracking, but the ashes seem to be fresh. I hope to catch up with him soon. If I had learned of his intent before delving down through these caves after him, I might have simply left him to his fate. But now, after coming this far... I feel as if I would be somewhat relieved at any human companionship, no matter how vile. I am nearly out of torches, with only two now left, and no food. I sense the presence down here is aware of that fact. At times I spot shadows in the corners of my eyes. I pray to God let me live. I will abandon this mission and return home. One torch left. Darkness beckons. I cannot describe how I feel at this moment. I have waited until my hands were steady before attempting to record what has happened. My torch was nearing its end and the scratching drew closer. I could hear it so clear. It sounded like a watery, fleshy weight, like a heavy corpse, 
and its skin was being dragged across rocks. But I knew this was my own imagination. There was nothing down here with me. And then I turned to see a vile creature stood in the distance. So large its head brushed the ceiling of the tunnel even though it crouched. Its matted, mossy-strewn hair draped in front of its deathly white face. I did not breathe. I did not think. It walked towards me. But walk is the wrong word. As it moved like a mixture of injured bear, spider, and sloth. By God, I have never witnessed something so unhuman, so deformed in appearance. As it drew closer, close enough to smell the dank, earthy, rotten aroma wafting from it, I noticed its face had no features, no eyes, no nose, no mouth. It was then that sanity returned to me. I turned and fled into the tunnel. The creature sounded as if it slowly loped after me, its whispery rasping growing further and further away. After what seemed like hours, I came to three different tunnels, one going left, one right, one straight. There was no breeze, no runes to give direction, nothing to hint of which way freedom lay. I was doomed. But the torch, near death, lit up, and sickly green sparks crackled around and from it. The flame swelled, billowed to the right, and the sparks twirled after it, passing down the tunnel and resting on the floor, faintly lighting up the tunnel. I ran down the lit tunnel, not caring how it happened, not focusing on the scratching footsteps now reappearing behind me. The monster must have feared I might escape and was bent on stopping me. I could hear it close in the distance. I could still smell that rot and decay thick in my nostrils. The torch faded but I stayed running until it died and I was fleeing into darkness. A breeze touched my cheek, a bare whisper but it gave me strength and I put all my will, all my strength into keeping away from those footsteps growing nearer. The ground began to turn upwards. The darkness grew to a murky gray, and the breeze now grown stronger. The footsteps were close. I could sense the creature ten paces behind, five paces behind, as the light grew clearer and I could see an exit, and I could smell trees and fresh dirt. Then, it gripped my leg. Its sharp nails pierced flesh instantly and sunk into muscle. I gasped, lost my footing and tumbled, hitting the floor. Looking back, the creature's featureless face was transparent in the natural light and I could see the ceiling through its head. A slit appeared where its nose should have been and it popped open, revealing suckers and sharp fangs like a hybrid between an octopus and a shark. The fangs ripped into my leg, sucking up blood, and my leg tingled, quickly losing any feeling. 
I ripped the knife from my belt, lifted it over my head, and brought it down on the back of the creature's head once, twice, making it release my leg and back away. The fangs dripped with scarlet dribbles. I stood brandishing the knife and axe now as I limped my way backwards, raising the weapons any time it stepped forwards. As I reached the mouth of the cave, the monster began moaning, a bubbling, grating, teeth-clinching sound. It turned and fled back into the cave. I almost fainted, but that was when Felipe caught me. Are you okay, Turkman? Felipe asked, laying me down beneath the tarp. He had made a lean-to on a hill facing the cave, and a small fire crackled in front of it. Fine, thank you. I'm just tired and weak after those caves. I thought it best not to let Felipe know that I knew what he intended. He looked down at my bleeding leg and watched me closely from beneath the bowler hat's brim. After bandaging my leg, he set a pot to boil and made us coffee. What startled me more was how badly Felipe's hand shook as he poured the coffee and handed me the tin cup. Are you okay? You seem disheveled, I said as I sipped at the coffee. I must tell you something, but drink first, eh? Felipe held his hands to the fire, warming them. As I sipped the coffee, some of my strength returned and I stood up and left the lean-to. I dropped the cup. Looming there in the distance, surrounded by trees, overgrown vegetation, dense underbrush and jungle. Twelve tall towers penetrated the tree line. They were covered with vines, but the closest one, through its vines, I saw the glint of metal. The golden glint of metal. I had found the Twelve Bells of Manteca. Seem, it seems we have found it. I turned to find Felipe now standing, aiming a revolver at my head. You know, I found out your intentions after finding these. I took out the journal from inside my coat and showed it to him. It seems something made you abandon them. I wonder what? You know what it was, dirt man. That thing almost killed me. But if I give you to it and run like the devil, I might just make it. <laughs> just then, as the sun shone from behind the cloud, the air filled with a deafening, jarring, vibrating tone. As the bells began to toll, Felipe jumped, the pistol fired widely, and I took my chance, turning and fleeing toward the jungle. Another bullet hit the dirt mere paces away, so I ran in a jagged line, narrowly escaping the next bullet which hit a tree. Finally, I reached the tree line, and without another moment to lose, fled into the wild. I sit here now, after finding one of the ancient towers, its walls crumbling, covered in vegetation, writing what has become of my expedition, writing everything, 
from my childhood to my betrayal. I will keep record of what next transpires and hope that if anyone should find this, please send word back to London informing the museum and may God have mercy on my soul. Night has fallen. Felipe has chosen not to chase me into the jungle. There seems to be no wildlife inhabiting these ruins. No birds or insects break the definite silence. After exploring the ruins, I found the partly collapsed stairway choked up with vegetation. Luckily, I still had my knife and climbing axe, which I used to begin cutting some away from the wall, where part of the stairs remains intact. Tomorrow, I shall continue my work after setting some trip alarms around the site. Braided cord and piled stone should do just fine. The wind has picked up during the day, and the trees sway wildly in the dusk. I'm trying to keep my mind busy by writing, but I have no more cartridges of ink and shall allow myself only monetary notes along with any happenings. Best save it until I have something to record. I awoke to a heavy rain. The sky is dark and the wind whistles through the trees in a most unusual fashion, somewhat like a kettle on the boil. After finding and braiding vines and placing them between balanced stones, I find myself happy with the makeshift defenses. The day was early, so feeling somewhat braver than the day before, and armed with a sharpened spear, I journeyed to the edge of the jungle where I could spy Felipe's camp through the trees. His fire remained smoldering, but he seemed to have vacated camp. I crept around the edge of the tree line and made my way to the camp where I found some dried meats and ink. I took these and kicked dirt onto his fire, extinguishing it, before breaking the lean-to apart and running back into the jungle. I am not sure where Felipe could have gone, as returning to the ruin where I slept I found no signs of disturbance. Journeying into the jungle further, with my knife I cut marks into the bark to keep track of my direction and hours passed before I came to another tower, which was much bigger and surrounded with many more ruins than the last. Indeed, I found many skeletons in some of these, which showed no signs of wear or animal marks, which is most unusual. In one large ruin, I found almost pristine artifacts in abundance. Clay tablets which I found depicted calendars, military declarations, laws, history, there was one tablet that I found in a recess at the back of the ancient library, which was most interesting. I shall attempt to translate it as authentically as possible. Fifth Son of the Goddess Maestem Our priests have finished the inscriptions on the bells, and all that remains is to place them in the towers and await the alignment. Polkayet says that she saw an omen last night. An eagle caught a snake and the snake swallowed it in flight. She says that this is the gods allowing us to overcome the disease that now eats at our people. Our cities lie empty and rotten across the empire, and only the clean are allowed passage through the caves, as the demon Alugash preys on any unworthy who enter. My own daughter was taken from me during my journey through, 
Paul Bachaid. Fifth moon of the goddess Maestin. The twelve bells have been erected in the towers and the alignment has begun. The sky has darkened and as night falls a blood moon rises. Each sacrifice screamed from their tower as the moon rose and the towers burned in that sickly green glow for hours. The screams grew demented, speaking of monsters coming through a void. The priests would not allow the families of those sacrificed to enter the towers. Some even ran crying back into the tunnels, where they were quickly silenced by the fangs of Alugash. The moon is at its zenith. The sacrifices have fallen silent. The moon is darkened, turning the clouds a bruised purple. As the towers glow brighter, the animals of the jungle flee. Slowly the bells begin to toll, almost gently, but as the glow fades the tolls echo, and both light and sound fade. The priests say that this night has been a success. Here the tablet was cracked due to the caved-in roof, and many tablets lay cracked into pieces in the recess. I left the library with haste, leaving the tablet behind and entering the lower part of the tower. Here the vegetation wasn't as overgrown as the one where I slept, and after two hours I had cut my way through most of it, sidestepping up the crumbling steps and into the tower. The windows were so overgrown with vines that it seemed like dusk, but upon cutting away some of these, the daylight fell on something that quite surprised me. I found two packs, modern packs, covered in dust and thin creepers that clung to everything in the room, including the bell. Cutting the creepers away from the packs, I dropped my knife. There, written across one of the packs, was Nathaniel Wright II. I broke open the lock, which fell away easily, and pulled out the contents, which consisted of mostly basic explorer's tools and equipment compasses and maps and such. I found no journal and set to open in the next pack, which was simply filled with clothing and a revolver with two boxes of bullets. Sticking the gun into my belt, I stood and took another look around. I found some skeletal remains in a corner, which quite frightened me at first. Thinking these were perhaps my father's, but cutting more of the creepers away, I found these to be one of the unfortunate Mantecan sacrifices. Or priests, I was unsure. The day was quickly fading, and I decided to spend the night here, and changed into some fresh clothing from my father's pack. Taking some of the rope from the pack, I set a trip alarm in the stairs to where I slept, and couldn't stifle the questions rushing through my mind. Where was my father if his equipment was here? Had he returned back into the cave and fell prey to that monster? I shuddered at the thought and eventually fell into an uneasy slumber. I awoke after hearing the trip alarm and saw a flickering light coming up the stairwell, followed by a muttered curse. Standing, I crept into the corner near the stairs and aimed the pistol. A shadow appeared. Then I recognized Felipe's hat. I pulled back the hammer of the revolver, and the noise made Felipe stop walking. Take your gun and throw it aside, I said. And after a moment of hesitation, he laughed. 
then took his gun and threw it onto the floor. After picking up the gun, I then brought the butt of the revolver down onto the back of his head, knocking him unconscious. Afterwards, I tied his hands and feet with rope and searched his pockets. But besides some bullets, cigars, and dried meats in his pack, he carried nothing else. I then dragged him to the bell and sat him against one of its four metallic support beams, gagged him, and tied him to it before returning to where I slept. I woke to the cries of women, men, and children who could be heard shouting from outside. Felipe was still tied to the bell, his eyes wide with panic. Standing at the window, I saw the clouds were dark, blood red, turned as such from the blood moon, which had risen in a fiery red haze with whiffs of emotion-like clouds floating before it. Dark shapes moved around below the tower. Felipe's muffled cries drew my attention, so I took the gag out of his mouth. <laughs> what is it? What's happening? He asked. Is the monster back? There's something out there. Now back at the window, I noticed that the jungle was sparser, more maintained, and the ruins were intact. No. No, it can't be. What? The panic was as crisp and cold as ice in Felipe's voice. Grabbing and lighting the lantern, I rushed down the stairway, pistol in hand. Outside, shadows rushed by me, and when they came closer, I could see the moonlight reflected in their eyes. There could be no mistake in their features. These were Mantecan people. Hey, excuse me! I stepped in front of one of the women who was ushering three kids in front of her but they passed through me as if I wasn't there. I found a group of men stood before the other side of the bell tower. One was dressed in animal skins, such as the Mantecan priests he wore a jaguar pelt over his head. In front of the priest stood four warriors surrounding a man whose hands were bound behind him. They led the prisoner up into the tower, leaving behind a group of men and children who were crying after them. What I guess must have been the poor man's family. Following the priest into the tower, I saw the man being placed before the bell, where his hands were strapped by rope to the metal support beams. Free me, please, hissed Felipe, staring in horror at the Mantecan warriors and priests as they began dousing the man in oils and placing oddments around his feet, such as meats, grain, precious metals, and bottles of colorful liquids. Don't leave me here. I admit I hesitated in fleeing Felipe, who I knew would have had no guilt in slitting my throat after finding the bells. But my better nature won the internal conflict, and I rushed over to him, undoing his bonds as the priest began intoning words from a clay tablet. A heat began to wash from the bell, first like a low fire, but quickly growing into a stifling oven. The warriors left the tower, and as the last bonds were freed from Felipe's feet, the bell began to vibrate, the tip of it turning slightly green, casting strange shadows across the ceiling and seeming to suck the natural light from the air around it. Felipe stood, and we moved away from the bell, too awestruck to even consider leaving the tower. The bell was now fully glowing the tip having turned so bright that it was more white than the sickly green, and the shadows on the ceiling had deepened, 
swirling and forming into shapes of long-limbed animals, or should I say humanoid forms with animalistic features, eagle's heads, serpent heads, hunched spines and talons for hands. I felt Felipe pull me closer and shout into my ear, We must leave! But I shook my head, transfixed as the words of priest were almost washed out by the gathering thrum of vibrating bell tolls in Russian air, which manifested itself into a deep, powerful voice that joined in with the priest's chanting. The man who was being sacrificed pulled back on the rope until his wrists were bleeding, and now his skin began to smolder with thin wafts of smoke trailing up from his hair, and then his eyes rolled back in his head. He went rigid, spine arching backwards, pushing himself up onto his tiptoes. But then to my horror, his toes left the floor and he hovered in place. A faint red glow shone beneath his chest cavity and the priest seeing this, took out a long cylindrical object with one end sharpened and pierced it into the man's chest. Instantly blood spurted out and onto the bell, but instead of landing on its surface, it began orbiting around the bell, glowing in a bright red hue. Shadows on the ceiling took on a three-dimensional form, reaching their long limbs down towards the trailing bloodstreams that were still increasing as the blood flow grew heavier. The man's hair was now beginning to catch flame. His eyes had stopped rolling and now water leaked from them. No, not water. His eyes were the liquid dripping down his hollow cheeks drying out and being vaporized. It was just as the shadows reached the bell and the man's skin took flame that Felipe grabbed me by the arms and pulled me down the stairway and out of the tower and past the horror-stricken Mantecans. I sit here now at Felipe's camp, taking record of events with trembling hands. Felipe does not speak, but has made no move against me. The towers, all twelve towers, grow brighter, shining throughout the valley. I sleep tonight to the screams of the ancient dead. I awoke with a revolver stuck to my head. Felipe had taken my gun in the night, but instead of shooting me, he moved away. I am leaving. I'd rather take chance with the monster than stay here. I'm taking the guns with me. Are you coming? I saw that he had readied the lantern and all of my supplies. He must have returned and taken them from the tower. He now shouldered the pack. I shook my head knowing that there was little hope of living even if I did make it back through the caves. Felipe nodded. So be it. I... I will send help back if I can. And without another word, my traitorous travel companion turned and entered the mouth of the cave. The revolver pointed ahead of him. I am now alone, and I am scared. After waking this morning, I had explored along the tree line for some hours, seeing if I could find anything to eat, but this place is barren. It was near noon when I spotted a figure near a rock pool. As I neared, it turned and ran, but I could guess by its bulky shape that it is a man. 
Being much too weak to chase the figure, I ventured to the pool and found footprints that were definitely human. Picking up a stone, I began etching into a large boulder. I mean you no harm. I held no hopes that this man would understand my message, but I could think of nothing better. After returning to camp empty-handed, day passed into dusk, and as night drew in, a yellow moon rose, and the twelve towers turned its sickly green color. The jungle was once more filled with the screaming voices, and I spent a fitful night in a hungered, terrified state. Once dawn crept over the land, I journeyed back down to the rock pool, which took me somewhat longer as my body was near an exhaustion. But what I found by the pool made me sit and stare for some moments. Along with bananas, dried meats, and two flasks of water was a piece of paper weighted down with a stone. Picking this up, I had only time to read the writing before collapsing. My name is Nathaniel Wright. Please take this food. I mean you no harm. I was awoken by water being splashed upon my face, and after wiping my eyes, my vision focused on an image that made my head spin. There, standing in front of me, aged almost beyond recognition, was my father. He frowned down at me. Oh, are you all right? You, you fainted. Here, drink this. He handed me a water skin which I drank from and found my voice. <laughs> it's you. <laughs> You're dead. I think not. Do I know you? I stood then, wiping the dust from my clothes. You don't recognize me? I'm not surprised. It's been a long time. His face was deeply lined, gray hair fell down past his shoulders in a tangled confusion, and he was rather gaunt with deep dark shadows around his eyes. Those eyes now filled with recognition, followed swiftly by horror. No. No, it can't be. Nathaniel? What are you doing here? You shouldn't have come. He fell into a fit of panic, turning and walking swiftly away, clutching and pulling at his hair. I followed until we reached a large ruin where I had camped, and he shook his head, looking around at the jungle. He entered the library, searching frantically through the pile of clay tablets at the rear, until he picked one up and pointed a finger, muttering more to himself. Ah, oh, yes. The passage of the blood moon was last night. My slip out of the void mustn't have been noticed. They will be thirsty. Yes, indeed. Who are they? I startled him, making him jump and drop the tablet. At that moment, I fully realized how changed he was. Not only aged, his eyes looked empty. Two hollow spaces blank windows where once his soul had shone through. What happened to you? Yes, I, I suppose an explanation is in order. Come, come with me. We left the library and walked back up the stairs where the room looked unchanged, although the bell's golden surface seemed darker. Still golden, 
but drained not only the light from around it, I could also sense the energy being sapped from my core. Father sat me down and passed me the water skin. After I left on my expedition and found earthworks after reconnaissance mission in a hot air balloon, I mapped the location with a team of four natives and made my way through this damned jungle. Father tried to smile, but it didn't look right on his face. Finally, I came to the site between the tributary and jungle. At first glance, I was disappointed, knowing that the land wouldn't support a city of Manteca size. But after further exploration, we found the caves that led here. I lost three men getting through those caves. That wretched monster would drag them off, screaming. His eyes grew distant, as if hearing their cries still. Not a day went by when I wouldn't be tempted to return to those caves and face that beast, to make it pay for what it had done. But my remaining teammate and I soon found the ruins among the thick jungle, and focused our minds in translating the texts found. The reason for Manteca's downfall became apparent. They were dying off from some disease, some plague, and were hiding away here. Their priests made inhumane sacrifices, what at first I believed to be some tribal quackery, but reading the texts found in other ruins where larger barracks had been built, I found accounts from the priests speaking of terrible events, things that I thought were hallucinations. But I discovered at much cost to my own soul, but they weren't delusions. He shook his head, lifting a hand to stop me from comforting him. Yes, yes, it's fine, my son. I understand you're worried. He glanced at the bell. I share your concerns. These towers and bells weren't made by the Mantecans. Yes, I believed also that they were, but in those clay tablet records, they state that when Mantecan scouts first breached those caves and came back with descriptions of the beast, the Emperor sent a force that made it through and back at great cost. Only one quarter of the force that left returned, with a tale of ancient ruins and magical, metallic objects that would glow when the moon rose and took the lives of any men unfortunate enough to be near at hand. What about the priests? Why didn't they succumb to the power of the bells? Father shook his head. I struggled to understand how they avoided death. 
so thought it wise to observe the bells at nightfall. As you have seen, when the bells are in effect, the spirits who once dwelled in these lands return, but cannot be spoken to or interacted with. This is when I discovered one of the priest's remains out in the jungle. I believe this priest was murdered by the civilians. On his remains I found a necklace, golden, and would light up when near the bells. It seemed that these necklaces protected the priests, and wearing one, I foolishly entered this tower when the blood moon rose. But we don't have any now. What are we doing here? Ah, son, I must go back. If they discover that the void has been breached, they will come looking for me. I must go back and try to rescue the others. Now I know the void can be breached, I must try to save them. This is madness. I then tried to pull him toward the stairway, but even though he was somewhat emaciated, he held his ground pushing me away and then began frantically searching through the room. He turned and stared at me with wide eyes. Leave. Leave now through the cave while you still can. Unsettled by his demeanor, I left the tower and stood outside, gazing up into the gathering shadows within the ruin. Dusk came and passed, and a yellow moon rose. At first I only sensed something stirring in the trees around me, but then I noticed the trees grew sparser, and now silhouettes moved through the terrain, each figure throwing glances over their shoulder at the tower as they passed. That was when I heard the screams. I rushed into the ruin, sidestepping up the stairs, seeing that the room was cast into that sickly green glow. Shadows danced along the walls and the ceiling. I found Father standing in front of the bell, half of which was aglow. Long, clawed limbs reached down for him, curling as they stretched further and further. My father's eyes were rolling back, sweat trickled down his brow. A necklace around his neck reflected the green glow, and his flesh was searing hot to touch. A whispery hiss that had been swirling around the room now intensified and sounded almost intelligible. The bell began tolling in a deep, bone-jarring tone. Doom went the bells of Manteca. Doom spoke the bells. Death hungered for the beaten heart of man, woman, and child. Hungered for their still-haunting spirits, and my life was at an end. For the bells of Manteca spoke doom. On the front of the bell, about one hand in size, was a small black square with gray grids running along it. As my father's screams intensified and his back arched towards me in agony, the window grew larger 
until I could see shapes slithering around behind the gray grid lines. The red glow on Father's skin began to sift out, floating towards and into the window, which was by now the size of a doorway. The red mist landed on the grid lines which began rotating and pulled away, disappearing. With a loud grinding noise, the door slowly swung outwards and blinding green light flashed out through the doorway in flickering spears of white, making me shield my eyes. That voice that spoke then was like no voice I had ever heard or could ever imagine. Cold, razor-sharp shards of dark marble slid over my soul, rending gouges and filling them with a putrid substance that wiggled its way deeper, a burning tapeworm that settled in my heart. A dark figure appeared among the green light, and what at first I thought another human now manifested itself. Its eyes were large and inky as a seal's, with three small elephant-like trunks. Its ears were large and pointed like a bat's, and upon seeing me, the trunks peeled back, revealing a set of fangs beneath, yellow and jagged, as long as my fingers. It lifted its arms, pointing not with fingers and hands, but a mass of writhing tendrils, instantly recognizable as flesh. Only each odd tendril's tip peeled back to reveal holes that seemed to sniff at the air. It was now that I noticed the screaming was not my father's screams, but my own. More of these figures emerged from the doorway, moving around me with odd lurching gaits, as if unaccustomed to the gravity. With a clink-clanking sound, a line of men emerged from the doorway, each bound by chains to the man behind and in front of him. I recognized three of them to be of Mantecan descent and the others looked like the natives in the Amazon. Their faces were as gaunt and lifeless as my father's, of who they now freed from his bonds and lifted, dragging him back into the doorway. I make no claim of being a brave man, but right then something broke inside of me. Perhaps it was the years of my father's disappearance, the years of hurt and pain, but I grabbed my knife and axe and set upon the nearest creature which had been inspecting me closely. I drove the axe down between its eyes and another time, its cry was ear-splitting. Two creatures rushed at me, the rest ushered the human captives back through the doorway. I sank the knife into the center of the nearer creature's trunk-like nose and it toppled onto me, knocking me back onto the floor. A dark green liquid gushed out of its wound and covered my face. Its taste was as vile as ink and old oysters mushed together with a mangy dog's urine. The last creature jumped on its fallen comrade, and those writhing masses of fleshy tendrils wriggled over my face, gouging and probing into my eyes, mouth, up my nostrils. It probed my face for what seemed like minutes before I could gather enough strength and pushed the weight of the two aside. The creature tumbled aside, letting a squeal out like metal scraping glass, but I was back on my feet and just had time to see the doorway closing. Just had time to see through the gap my father's face. His eyes opened, lips turned up in a warm smile as he looked at me. But then the door banged shut, the gray grid line snapped back over the door, and an enormous blast of warm air drove me stumbling backwards. 
I tripped over the dead creature, but managed in grabbing the living one by its trunk before it could get the better of me, and hacked into its face with the axe. Once it fell still, I regained my strength once more and examined the bell, which was cooling and the glow was quickly fading. The window had vanished, and I had to check three times that the creatures were really there. The night slowly passed into morning, and I have armed myself with four sharpened spears and am taking note of all that has transgressed last night. With the sun shining so brightly, it is hard to believe the facts that fill these pages, and I fear that whoever finds this journal will think that I have lost my mind. Hopefully, Felipe has made it safely through the cave and will return with help. Whoever shall find these notes, please send word to my mother, telling her that Father lives and I am going to try and save him. I found a necklace. Father must have dropped it when being carried through the doorway of the void. I am entering through the bell tonight. I am sacrificing myself for the infinitesimal chance that I may one day return with my father. And together, we shall return to London with the bells of Manteca. Together. God, give me courage. And that was The Bells of Manteca by author Rory Duane. A good reminder to stay nice and close to civilization. See, it's not always a good idea to follow in the footsteps of your old man. I think many of you would agree. A little about the author. Rory C.J. Duane is a writer and artist who lives in the Midlands of Ireland. He'd like to dedicate this one to H.P. Lovecraft and H.G. Wells. You can check out Rory at RoryDwayneArt.wordpress.com. Also, you can find him on Amazon as RCJ Dwayne. That's W-A-N-E, where you can check out his new anthology, Black Tales, and more to come, including a couple new audiobooks on the way. Thanks, Rory. And do old Drew Blood a favor, would you? Subscribe to his podcast wherever you do your listening and leave him a five-star review and a kind word, even if you're listening on YouTube. He needs soldiers on all fronts to win this battle, and he appreciates it. To hear a premium ad-free edition of tonight's and all the other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click Patrons in the upper menu. You'll find yourself at ChillinTalesForDarkNights.com, where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to their entire audio archive, all ad-free and available to download or stream. Thank you for your time and for supporting our sponsors. When you support our sponsors, you support this show. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chillin' Tales for Dark Nights there where you'll get all the latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with them each and every week. Oh, and you can find Drew Blood on Facebook and Instagram, and sometimes Twitter. The Drew Blood's Dark Tales podcast is accepting submissions, friend. If you've got a story or two you'd like to be featured on the show, send it to drewbloodhorror at gmail.com. 
If selected, you'll get the full treatment, 10 bananas. Well, I'm afraid this is where we part ways, at least till next week. So grab a drink for the road, friend. It's National Hydration Day, remember? Man, there's always a good excuse to have a drink. I'd like to take the time to say hello and thanks to a few more of our listeners. So, username Sim Comics and Gaming, Soul Reaver 83, Wild West Sun, and how could I forget Mr. David Saldivar? Thanks for the kind comments, y'all. I really appreciate it. It's listeners like y'all is why I do this. So thanks again. So Sim Comics and Gaming, Soul Reaver, Wild West Sun, and Mr. David Saldivar. May the wind be at your back, and may the road rise up to meet you. I'm pretty sure no one played with themselves during this one, but if you did, well, go fuck yourself. Good night, y'all. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.